episode of the realm of unknown and i don't have that many big updates for you guys if you guys are new to the podcast we are a paranormal podcast that talks about all sorts of weird and bizarre things around the world that are just interesting and i want to cover because there's a lot of weird stuff out there and i think that a lot of them don't get discussed very often especially even within this little field and uh, if you are a returning guest, I apologize for the week break. There was a bit of some personal stuff coming up that required me to pretty much take last week uh, off, essentially, from at least recording and research. If you were staying up to date with the website and everything like that, those have been updated pretty much up until the most recent episode i believe helltown's episode article listing is going to be posted today otherwise we are up to the youtube channel is being updated as well and also some big news over on the patreon if you guys are not familiar with it or if you do want to support it the patreon has a lot of extra bonus content and for this month there's going to be even more so if you are unfamiliar with what we've been doing for the past few episodes the Patreon gets a sort of bonus article segment after every single new upload. So after this episode, if you go over to the Patreon, you have an extra bonus 15 minutes, 20 minutes to enjoy and listen to. And for the month of October and parts of November, and I'll see what I do moving on. I'm also doing something that is something that I used to do over on the YouTube channel. And that is a sort of segment called Terror Tuesdays. Essentially what that was was me going over a strange creature or urban legend or local myth or monster that, you know, was interesting to me that came about during my research. And I covered it very, very shortly. This was back in, you know, the early days of doing it and not really knowing what's going on and not knowing how to properly research and how to properly take notes and record and have like a decent chunk of content. So I want to go back and I want to revisit some of those episodes, those early episodes, those early topics and flesh them out a bit more. So they are going to be uploaded over onto the Patreon as a bonus series. I, I'm not sure what I'm going to be calling it at this moment, but they are going to be over there. I estimate that there's gonna be like maybe three for this month just because i kind of came up with the idea a few days ago and moving forward we'll see how it goes but for this month there's gonna be three extra bonus episodes on top of the other bonus episodes and uh, recently we actually even just posted some additional photos from the laurel hill investigation that i was on back when i was in temple so there's a lot of goodies over on the Patreon, and if you wish to support the podcast, you can do so with the $1, 3 and $5 tier lists. All of them will give you access to the bonus episodes, but as the more you go up, the more content you get. So what do we have for today's episode? Today we have something a bit different. We don't normally cover topics like this over on uh, this podcast. 
However, it is something that I came across and is something that I thought interesting. And the more I looked into it, the further, you know, compilation of information that I wanted to present to you guys. And today we are discussing the legends of Fort Mountain and the mysterious stone structures that line the Appalachian Trail down in the good old south. So, a lot of this is going to be coming from the script that I compiled out. I'm not going to free flow too, too much because there's a lot of facts, but I'm going to just start up. So, when early European settlers first arrived in northern Tennessee through northwest Georgia, they discovered a continuous chain of hundreds of fieldstone structures up in the mountains and the hilltops between Manchester, Tennessee, and, and Stone Mountain, Georgia. Some of these structures were just merely piles of stones, and archaeologists later believed this to be a sort of urn or kern-like structure, while others formed small cylinders, small rings, and some had more complex combinations to them. In fact, a lot of them had what believed to be walls or sort of foundational structures to them, and even more so, two of them appeared to be walled villages in and of themselves. These structures baffled the villagers and the settlers that came to the region from Europe back in the you know early colonial times. And it continues to be a bit of an archaeological and anthropological mystery to this day, and hence why we're discussing the mystery with today's episode. So there are the sort of history of these structures, let's get into. There are several surviving sites up in northern Georgia and western North Carolina that consists of dozens of these fieldstone kerns or smaller structures. The two largest are located in Kensaw Mountain National Battlefield and in Ball Ground, Georgia near the uh, Atawa River. And a heads up, throughout this episode I'm going to pronounce things rough. Just, just give me a pass. So when you're in the path of uh, suburban development, this sort of stuff kind of pops up a bit more, and a lot of these smaller kerns ended up being able to get studied by archaeologists as they were discovered in more modern times. Artifacts found in the vanity of the kerns suggest that they were constructed during the late Archaic and early woodland areas eras of northern America prehistory. And if you're unfamiliar with that, it's essentially the sweet spot between two periods of human history, regional history. This is all this is all pre-colonial, of course, and pre-Columbus. And so this little sweet spot essentially dictates 16 BC up until 8 BC, if you just want to have a reference point to where we're discussing. There are no human remains or skeletons that have been discovered at these locations to you know, suggest that people were buried here. However, it, it should be noted that the soil of northern Georgia is often known to be rather damp and acidic in nature, so it could easily have, you know, decompose the remains over the century and i'm sure you're wondering it's like but their bones they don't dissolve or anything fun fact uh, acidic soil or sour soil as it's known 
it can actually dissolve and decompose bones because the acidity levels specifically target the organic compounds found within it. And, you know, just to be double, double sure, I did double check this and uh, I'm sure I'm on a list now for searching if soil can decompose bones. But some of these field stones enclose enclosures such as the ones on a lad's mountain they have some interesting aspects to them clearly for you know they were used for some sort of astrological observation or some sort of ceremonial site other sites such as the enclosures at fort mountain in georgia that were sort of the main catalyst to get into this topic as well as browns mountain in georgia and near manchester tennessee there are larger structures that could potentially point toward military functions in the sense of them being used as forts or barracks or something as a sense of defense on top of the mountain. There is very little archaeological work that has been done on Fort Mountain in particular, hence why we're not really talking about it as a whole and we're doing a broader topic in, in a general sense. However, uh, an old stone fort in Tennessee, there is evidence of some structural layout. It is possible that the houses, or that the fort houses, what once was probably priests or retainers, or it could have potentially been a temporary shelter for attendants when the enclosure was being used for seasonal celebrations, or ceremonies, essentially. Now, both Fort Mountain and Manchester's old stone fort had gates that were or ornated with the solar azimuth, and I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, but essentially it's the sort of compass direction that utilizes the angle of the sun throughout the day. And this is something that you see a lot in, you know, ancient structures, ancient formations, and it's something that's evident in at least two of these forts. Now, most archaeologists uh, have assumed that Fort Mountain could not have been a foundation or a fortification of any sort because the rock walls that, you know, people are associating to a fort or a sort of defense de of some sort, they only extended along the western and southern ends of the mountain, which wouldn't you know, obviously be a very good fort if half of it is not defended. And furthermore, most of the fieldstone structure sites, there's not enough stone that is actually visible to have created a wall of stones solely in order to defend against enemies. Generally, the volume of stones was around like 18 to 36 inches in height in the quote-unquote so-called wall. And uh, the stone walls at Brown's Mount and the old stone fort in Manchester have also fallen into this sort of inadequacy for defense purposes. And uh, it's something that you... Was an early theory that, you know, they have these foot-high stone walls defending this mountain. It just wasn't practical, and it just... The evidence doesn't show that these... They are still walls, are just not stone walls adequate enough to create a fort or create a sort of defense mechanism for military purposes or that such. It does get interesting because that's not where it ends with the research into 
what these weird stones are. So we're actually going to move to a bit more of a modern time period, and this is going to take us to the summer of 2005. Most of the stories that we were talking about and the information that we were mentioning came from very early theories, uh, stretching pretty much from like the 18th century into the 20th. So now we're in the 21st, and the summer of 2005, further investigations of you know, a lot of these surviving fieldstone structures went underway. Specifically, they were looking at locations within southeastern Tennessee and northwestern Georgia, so the border between the two, and at, specifically again, Brown Mounts in middle Georgia as well. Immediately, it became apparent that there were only stone walls in locations where the soil was very shallow, again, supporting this, like, they're very short walls in general. And when the soil uh, depth extended about two feet or so, there was evidence of earth burns, which are essentially compacted dirt and gravel that was used in substitution to the stones themselves. And this actually led the researchers and the investigators to believe that the fieldstone walls and the earth burns combined were not actually used as a fortification per se, but they were rather similar to, I guess, buttresses in order to support what would actually be this sort of fortification. In order to sort of nail it down, the investigators believe that these were actually used to support vertical timber stacks. A few timber stacks have actually been discovered by archaeologists over in the woodland and I'm going to pronounce this wrong, sanitary village sites in the southeast. However, the possibilities of this specific type of timber fencing on the mountaintop enclosures, it suggests that this sort of, I believe it's like uh, Mississippian type structures, it predates those villages that the archaeologists found in the southeast by a good portion of time this would date the structures the mississippian towns and the villages that i just mentioned they are roughly between 900 a.d and 1600 a.d and obviously these stone structures are dated into the bc's so the evidence that perhaps these you know large structures are utilizing a technique uh that from what we can understand, has not been determined that far back, uh, is definitely an interesting find for archaeologists. Now, for reference, if people are trying to figure out what the hell I'm talking about, if you can imagine the like very large vertical trunk-like structures that surround Native American villages, that's essentially what this is. I don't know the specifics if there's any you know variation to Mississippian towns or not, but if you can imagine that, this is what they are essentially inferring. Uh, so think of the stonework being used not as the wall itself, but as the sort of support mechanism for the larger wall that is utilizing the timber rather than the stone. So, what does this actually give us? We are talking about the history, we're talking about the archaeological stuff, but why was this an interesting story that I even decided to cover here in a paranormal sense. So we talk about conspiracies, we talk about mysteries. 
And there are a lot of legends and a lot of theories as to why and who and what is going on with these stone structures. So as we mentioned at the top of the episode, early European settlers to the area were confused and they were intrigued by these strange, you know, stonework that they couldn't explain. Originally, they did believe that the structures were made by the local Cherokee tribes. However, the Cherokees, they didn't actually move into this specific area until the late 1700s, or at least occupied it more prevalently prevalently at that time. They actually explained to the settlers that they were not responsible for the structures, that they were not the ones who created them, they were not the ones who utilized them. But rather, the Cherokee told the Europeans that the people who actually constructed these formations were the Creeks. Now, the Creeks were a southeastern tribe here in North America that occupied a large region between Alabama and Georgia. And the furthest back that I can find relation to the Creeks is 800 AD, which... I'm not an expert when it comes to history. I'm sure they can be narrowed down further back or have some sort of similar ancestor that goes even further back. The This specific native tribe, similar to most of them, kind of got the short end of the stick and got screwed over by Europeans. They ended up being one of the main tribes that was lumped into the Trail of Tears. Keep in mind that whole 800 AD date because it technically doesn't fall in line with how far back some of these structures are dated or believed to be dated to but again we have no idea whether or not there's an ancient you know tribe ancestor or perhaps the creeks were a tribe that melded from this original one i don't know and again there's so many theories about this that it's hard to actually know Now, the Creeks actually first encountered the Europeans back in 1540 when they fought against a Hernando de Soto. And de Soto was a knight and an explorer from Spain. He was moving through uh, the American Southeast with his party, and they came in conflict with the Creek. Now, the theory that the Creeks made it sort of blends with the theory that I'm going to talk about now that... De Soto was actually the one who created this, that he and his party were the ones who constructed the stone structures as a sort of defense. In particular, Fort Mountain in Georgia is the one that has a lot of that theory behind it. However, this particular theory, um, it, it gets sort of contradicted in the early 1970 or 1917. And this was pointed out by several historians that DeSoto, him and his party were only really in the area for like less than two weeks, which like that's no time for them to build and haul like giant stones up a mountain. And like, it's just not, it doesn't make any sense as to why or, you know, what the heck is going on. It just doesn't make sense. It's a theory that was very early in the makings and one that just doesn't hold a lot of ground. So furthermore with the whole Cherokee thing, another story that the Cherokees told to early settlers to the region tells them an account that the stone structures and sort of legends and mysteries behind them 
were built by a people known as the Moon Eyes. So similar structures in the in the specific forts might actually point to this because there are believed to be giant stone snakes with ruby eyes and sort of statues that might depict this. However, most of this is going to come from Cherokee stories. So according to the Cherokee tradition, the moon-eyed people lived in the lower Appalachian region before the Cherokee came to the area during the 1700s. So these are people that predate the Cherokee, that are around the time of the creek, that maybe even predate them. The people are said to be called moon-eyed because during the day they can see very poorly, but they could see way better at night and were much more active. Essentially, they were almost nocturnal in nature. They were described as being very small in stature, that the men of their tribe were bearded, everyone had light eyes, so think blue or almost pale like they were they also had a very pale white or gray like skin tone to them for this reason they were strictly nocturnal again like mentioned and oftentimes the legend has them living in underground caverns so the legend goes that the moon eyes were the ones who constructed the stone structures up and along the mountain ranges from georgia tennessee alabama that whole region However, shortly after they finished, they simply disappeared from the region. The stories kind of stopped, that they just kind of vanish. So the origins and specifics of the Moon-Eyed people is highly debated, pretty much since they were mentioned to the early settlers back in the 1700s. Stories are pretty much all over the place. Some stories say that the Moon-Eyed people simply vanished. Others say that they were eradicated by other tribes, such as the Creek or the Cherokee. A lot of historians do believe that perhaps the description of pale white could be referring to albino individuals in nature who may have been ostracized and formed their own sort of tribe on you know, these locations. There is actually a historian called Benjamin Smith Barton who was an early uh, historian on the matter who actually supports the albino theory in general. Barton actually goes on to believe that there is a possibility that these quote-unquote moon-eye people could actually be a sort of ancestor to the Kuma people, which are indigenous to Panama. I'm not sure on this theory, however, apparently the Kuma people are highly inceptive to albinism, and they are actually were at a certain time known as the moon-eyed people. So I think perhaps he might just be drawing at straws, but it is an interesting thing to point out. So when the Cherokee told the European settlers way back in the, in the day about this particular story and these particular people, the Europeans originally interpreted this as being great-eyed people, uh, great-eyed Europeans in particular. The stories were elaborated and just sort of broken down to the point in which most white settlers assumed that the stone structures and the stories were actually Celtic in nature, specifically a uh, colony of Welsh led by a Prince Madoc. So, Prince Madoc, that is another rabbit hole that I found that I went down and I want to talk about too, because there are 
plenty of theories and plenty of things that are going on with him, and they sort of tie into what we're talking about. Who is Prince Madoc, and what is the mystery around him? In 17, or, oh my goodness, in 1170, Prince Madoc and his brother, okay, also, this is all, like, Scandinavian shit, I'm gonna pronounce this all wrong, his brother, Ride, sailed from North Wales coast with two ships, the Garn Warrant and the Dart Sant. They sailed west and are believed to have landed in what is now Alabama here in the U.S., Prince Madoc then returned to Wales with grand stories of his adventures, encouraging others to travel back with him. And one year later, in, in 1171, a new party sailed from Lundy Island and was never heard from again. So, Prince Madoc is, this is real. Like People know this story. People, this is believed. He is one of the explorers that discovered North America, quote-unquote discovered, before Columbus, he is one of those early explorers who managed to find, you know, this new land to the west, or to the east, or, no, to the west, yeah. So this second voyage, this mysterious second voyage that never came home and never returned, no one ever heard from again, they are believed to have landed at Mobile Bay in Alabama again, before traveling up the Alabama River. Now, some of these mysterious stone forts just so happen to, you know, be speckled along that route. Again, forts that are said by local Cherokee tribes to have been constructed by, quote, moon eyes or pale white people. The dating of the structures, as we had gone over, do date several hundred years before the arrival of Columbus, and even more so before the arrival of the Cherokee who later move into the region. At this particular time, the Creek natives would be in that area. And again, there are supposed stories that the Creeks were the ones who ran the, quote, moon eyes out of the area. Furthermore, one of these structures is said to have a very similar design to a castle, a specific castle called Dowdlen Castle in North Wales. However, it it should be noted that this particular castle was constructed in the late 13th century, so a hundred years or so after this supposed voyage. I'm just going to chalk this up to the structure has cultural connection, because I honestly don't know what's going on, and I don't know why people connect the two. To add further evidence to Prince Madoc's party and his existence in North America, Early explorers and pioneers did find evidence of possible Welsh influence among the native tribes, particularly in and around the Tennessee and Missouri rivers. And in the 18th century, a one local tribe was discovered to have seemingly, you know, different from the others that they encountered. Now I'm going to be talking about this one because it deviates a little bit, but it should be noted because they are connected to Prince Madoc and Prince Madoc is connected to Fort Mountain. <laughs> so this particular tribe that we are talking about is the Mandans, and this tribe, when they were discovered by Europeans, many of the members had more Caucasian traits to them. They had blue eyes, lighter skin, and lighter, like, even blonde hair, 
And this was bizarre. This was not something that the Europeans had encountered at all before. However, the connection to Prince Madak and this particular tribe, it, it's been highly discredited by more modern scholars. This is due to the fact that the Mandans occupied a more northern section of the land. From what I can understand, they didn't get as, like any further south than Ohio, really. They were in like Wisconsin, they were in like those northern regions of the Midwest. However, people nowadays believe that their European traits may actually be attributed to surviving Norse explorers who came in from the north and sort of interbred with Europe with native tribes at that time. And hence why, you know, the connections were there, people just spitballed and connected things all over the place. And so Prince Maddock became a part of this legend, but it's more so theorized now that it is Norse people who are to blame for it. But that is the last little tangent. That is the last little theory or connection or mis mysterious thing in happenstance in relation to Fort Mountain and these sort of strange stone-like structures. At least that I could find. I'm sure there are more theories for particular forts and like more unique uh, locations. I sort of just wanted to do a broad stroke of things and then focus in on Fort Mountain and the Moonai people because once I found the Moonai people, I fell down another rabbit hole, hence why I landed on Prince Maddock and Prince Maddock created another rabbit hole. And I thought it was an interesting story that was something that doesn't really get talked about too much and is not a story I ever heard about yet, especially with like paranormal or mystery-based podcast stuff, and I thought it'd be fun to talk about and share with you guys. But that's all we have for today. I hope you guys did enjoy. Remember, if you do wish to hear some extra bonus content right now, right after this podcast episode, you can hop over to the Patreon. That's patreon.com slash realmofunknown, where you will find a bonus 15, 20, 30-minute extras bonus episode that's uploaded every week after every normal episode furthermore remember we are going to have a bunch of extra bonus content that is coming for the month of october you can check it out i'm not sure what tier list i'm going to be sharing it to but there is a one three and five dollar tier list if you wish to support the podcast if you cannot do so financially please feel free to leave a review it really really does help a lot and it definitely helps on my case because I am really shitty when it comes to keeping a consistent upload date. But until then, you can find me over at, you know, social medias on Twitter, Instagram, all those good stuff at Realm of Unknown. Or you can email me or check out the website at realmofunknown.com. But until then, I hope you guys enjoy and I hope to see you guys next week. And remember, until that point, remember to stay spooky. Oh.